What's the deal with the debt ceiling and why is it making so many of our nation's leaders so scared? This is Beyond Politics. It's available wherever you get your podcasts if you like audio. And that includes, if you prefer video, on YouTube, on the Blue Amp channel. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. But look, you've already heard about it in the news by now. And by the time you watch or listen to this, it could be summer of 2023 and we might be in a full-blown economic crisis. I know. Debt, bonds, even economics can be a bit of a drag to think about. I promise this is super interesting and super important. In this show, we want to go through why is this important? Why does it matter? Why it's like America's cold sword that won't go away. If it's such a giant pain in the ass and if it's screwing up so much of our potential economy, why can't we, you know, fix it? To do that, we have brought in the very best, the people's economist, Mark Zandi. He's not only the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, but someone who's so good at explaining topics like this. That's why he does it all the time on CNBC, NPR, Meet the Press, CNN. And when he gets called into Congress to explain to them all the things that they're doing wrong. Mark, welcome back to Beyond Politics. It's great to be with you, Matt. And Paul, just a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's just, it's so great. First of all, people should check out your pod. Why don't you say the name of it? Because you explain stuff like this so clearly, so well. Wow. You're giving me a chance to advertise right up front. Okay. I'll take it. In, Inside Economics. That's the podcast that I've been doing a little, oh, coming up. Someone, my assistant told me we're coming up on a hundred episodes. So we're get, getting better at it and just a lot of fun, but, but thank you for that. If you want to dive in, but you don't feel like you have a PhD in economics, but you find these topics interesting, that is the show for you. I love it. And it's like I said, you're like the people's economist. You explain things really super clearly. So let's start off with that big kind of top level question. The debt ceiling. What is very simply, it's a limit on the amount of debt that the US government, the Treasury can have outstanding and set it right now, $31.4 trillion. Treasury can't go over that amount. And that's a big deal because we run budget deficits every year. We take in less tax revenue than we we spend. So we need to borrow money and the debt level needs to increase if we're going to finance all of the spending that we've already agreed to do. So it's at 31.4 trillion. We achieved that yesterday, I believe, January 19th. There's ways Treasury can work around that a number for a, a couple, three, four months, not quite clear. It depends on how much revenue is coming in and what kind of checks they're cutting. You do the arithmetic here sometime in September, maybe early October, the government's not going to be able to pay all the bills that it owes. So someone's not going to get paid on time. And just cool. to read that back to you for a second, I know this analogy is common, but it's a little bit like a credit card limit, like a cap on what you can spend on your credit card. Yeah. And if you hit your limit, Maybe you can borrow from another one of your credit cards and like keep things going for a little while, but eventually you are just going to run out of your ability to keep re-upping and the, you're going to have to pay the piper. Yeah, that's exactly right. The government is using the proverbial credit card to pay all its bills. It's run up that credit card to its limit. Now it's using all the other tools it has, looking on the sofa for cash and anywhere else they have cash, other credit cards, anything they've got going to manage through this, but there's only loose change under the, people still have loose change, right? That may not work for people. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Unless it's an NFT of a cryptocurrency. Oh man. Yeah. I might not be able to say that for very much longer and people understand what I mean, but yeah, there's only so much loose change under the mattress, under the cushion. And at some point you're going to, as you said, pay the piper. So Madam Yellen is collecting the crown jewels and 
looking to see what else she can what else she can maneuver. It's like at this point, the government, if I get it right, is playing a shell game, moving things around on the table so you can figure out which pea is under which shell. And she's going to be able to keep on shuffling that for a while, but not forever. Yeah, that's right. Treasury, as you can imagine, has the U.S. Treasury Department has accounts, all kinds of accounts here, there, and everywhere. They're actually the guys that take the money in and cut the checks and pay the bills from the Social Security recipient receiving their money to the military to the electric bill, right? So they they manage all that. So they've got all these accounts sitting everywhere, and they're, they're trying to find that loose change, pay the bills for as long as they can. And again, it's not I'm quite un, not quite dead. We don't know exactly what day they're going to not be able to find that loose change anymore, and they can't pay all the bills on time. But in all likelihood, that's coming here later this summer, early. And Mark, one of the things that I was always very conscious of and talked a lot about when I was a congressman, and I'm still interested in, is the fact that if, and I may be wrong about the percentage, but we've borrowed an awful lot of money as a government, and we pay an awful lot of interest on that money we've borrowed. It amounts to something like 20% of everything that the federal government needs to spend, 20% or so, is what we're paying for the money we've borrowed from various places, including other countries. And I was talking to my 96-year-old mother yesterday, and she was really worried. She was worried. She's slowed down a little bit. So she was saying, what about that thing? That thing? What are we going to do about the thing? Am I getting my social security check because of the thing? And I gave her the name of debt ceiling and all of that. But can you tell us why is it so economically significant? What would be the impact of, of a breach, of a default? What happens? And should people be worried? Yes, they should be worried. And probably, and we can come back to it, more worried than other times when we've had these kinds of battles. By the way, we've had these battles since the debt limit legislation was passed back, I think it was 1917. So there's been a lot of these battles, but this battle feels different to me, and we can talk about that. But if the one of the bedrocks of our economy, of our financial system, the global financial system, is that you, if you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, that's money good. You're going to get your money back. You're going to get your inter, your principal and your interest back on time, no delay. And because of that, that confidence, we are able to borrow money very cheaply, more cheaply than anyone else on the planet. And that's critical. That goes to mortgage rates, that goes to auto loans, that goes to credit card debt, that goes to small business loans, that goes to all the things that we do to finance our growth and to grow the economy. And we pay very low rates because it's money good. And here's the other thing that's, I don't think is well appreciated. This is really important when things aren't going well, when we have a crisis, because when there's a problem anywhere on the planet, including here in the United States, because we are the AAA credit, we, we're money good, money comes pouring into our country, and that makes it a lot easier for us to get through that crisis. It makes it a lot easier. We got money coming in. So we don't want to give that up. That's critical to the, it's, again, it's the bed, one of the bedrock bedrocks of our economic system and our financial system. And it doesn't take a lot to shake that confidence, right? So if we miss paying someone on time, and by the way, that could be a bondholder, but it could also be the electric bill, because as soon as you don't pay your electric bill on time, 
the investor is going to think, oh, how long is it going to be before they're not going to pay me on time? Immediately, if you don't pay all your bills immediately on time when they're due, that confidence is going to be shaken. That bedrock is going to crack and we're, we're not going to have a benefit that we've had since really since Alexander Hamilton established the principle back at the founding of the nation that we pay our debts. We're money good. So one of the best things I learned in grad school, and I can't believe this is, this is the benefit. This is it. This is all I got out of a Harvard education. All right. It's think about policy problems by playing the movie. It's actually amazingly useful, right? Play the movie for yourself in your mind really helps you break down what the consequences are of a of kind of an abstract policy problem. All right. So let's imagine it's September. Maybe we'll make this like a Michael Bay movie, okay? Like it's a disaster movie. It's I, September. These movies are move too fast for me. Yeah, I, I, I just, I no, no fighting robots. Did you see the movie Ambulance? I just, I, I, my wife's away, so I was watching that last night because she won't let me watch it when she's here. That thing moves way too fast. Yeah, Christopher Pick Nolan. Movie. Okay. Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan. Here we go. Okay, uh, okay, I'm on board. Time travel yeah. involved. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's September and. Uh, the Republican leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, is still being chained down by the Freedom Caucus nutjobs. And he's, no, I will not negotiate. We're breaking this debt ceiling. And it happens. And Janet Yellen has a press conference. The debt ceiling has been breached. We cannot pay our bills. What happens next? What does the movie look like? What starts to happen in the next few hours? There's a lot of scenarios, but the most the thing that I can say with high level of confidence is that investors are going to say, oh my God, and or gosh, and interest rates are going to rise. They're going to spike and jump. Your mortgage rate is going to go from today at 6%. It's going to go to seven, seven and a half, eight percent. It's already unaffordable, be completely out of bounds with that. <laughs> Stock prices are going to come down, crash at the same time. We're all going to be worth a lot less. And of course, then government can't pay its bills. So people who rely on that cash aren't going to be able to spend and do whatever they, that they do. And the economy is going to go deeply into recession very quickly. Recession meaning layoffs, lots of layoffs. People are going to lose jobs and unemployment is going to rise very quickly. And that will happen within hours, days, and certainly if this continues on for much longer than that, it, we're, in a, we're going to be down a deep, dark hole economically within a few weeks. It sounds like the 2008 Great Recession kind of scenario, except maybe even compacted into it into a matter of days. Yeah, it's remember it's hard to remember, but September of 2008, things was were unraveling very quickly and. Financial institutions were cratering and failing. And of course, at that point, the federal government stepped in, the Federal Reserve stepped in, the federal government stepped in to support the economy and bailed out the banks and everything else. In this case, you're going to go down the rabbit hole. And then the question is, who's going to bail us out? How's that going to work exactly? And just that mere thought makes you even more nervous. And obviously, everyone's going to be thinking that way and makes the crisis even worse. And it's one of those things, once you go down the rabbit hole, it's like an Alice in Wonderland. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. What are the all the unintended consequences of this? Here's the other thing I'd say. That's the very immediate effect. There's enormous longer-term consequences, right? Because remember, we just broke the bedrock that's the key to the well-functioning economy. We're going to have higher interest rates long into the future, and it's going to diminish our economy, our ability to grow. We have $31.4 trillion in debt. You multiply that by even a small increase in interest rates. That's a lot of interest payments we're going to be making. That's a lot of things we can't be spending on Social Security or healthcare or childcare or the military or 
the electric pillar, whatever infrastructure, whatever it is. So this thing has enormous immediate implications, but the longer term implications also are very serious. What about the G? What about the geopolitical implications? You've talked about the disaster that would hit us as our domestic economy, but one of our biggest creditors is China, as the former Orange Cheeto would say. And what happens around the world if the American economy goes into the kind of tank that you're talking about? Of course, it would take everyone with us, right? We're still the largest economy on the planet. And if we're going to go down the rabbit hole, everyone's going down the rabbit hole, including what will happen is other countries and other investors from other places in the world are going to look for other alternatives. And they're not going to think of the United States as where I go if I've got a problem and I, because I know my money, if I put my money there, I'm going to get my money back with interest. They're going to go somewhere else. Mm. We ultimately could lose the reserve currency status that we have right now, which is also another major benefit that we have. So it just makes, it'll, it'll, instead of country becoming closer tied to us economically and financially, it gives them an incentive and motive to move in the op- opposite direction. Of course, that's not good for us either. So you're right. It has enormous implications globally as well. It's a really scary picture that you paint. And I, look, I did set you up for that a little bit by prompting you with I like the Michael the movie, Bay idea. Yeah, the movie did it. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was hoping for cities in flame, but you know, what you conjured up is pretty <laughs> darn bad. You know, what's interesting is you said, Mark, a second ago that we've seen this movie a little bit before the, these kinds of standoffs over the debt ceiling, but you hinted that this one is different. And I'm guessing what you mean is this one seems more serious and more perilous. So I want to ask you a two-part question about that. First, what do you mean? Why is this different? And second of all, if this is different, and if there's more peril this time around, why aren't the markets freaking out even more right now? Yeah, I do think this time is more perilous than times past. The, that, that in times past, I'd say with a reasonable high level of confidence, there's a zero probability that lawmakers aren't going to sign on the dotted line and address the debt limit before someone doesn't get paid. I can't say that today. It's, it's still a low probability given the scenario I just described. It just seems lunacy that they wouldn't sign on the dotted line in time, and therefore I expect that they will. But it's not. It's a non-zero probability, which that's very uncomfortable. It makes me very nervous. And the reason, number of reasons, but the key reason is what we observed in the House back a couple of weeks ago when there was just chaos with regard to electing a speaker of the House, Senator Congressman McCarthy became became, became speaker. But that was a very, as we saw, a very arduous, painful process. And in that process, he had to give up a lot uh, to his colleagues to get their votes so that he could become speaker. And one of those things he gave up or said he would agree to do was fight on the debt limit, that he's going to take this right to the edge, if not over the edge just to address, to satisfy the demands that he was receiving so that he could get the votes and become Speaker of the House. And here's the thing, passing any, and I'm sure Congressman, the Congressman can tell us this, passing any legislation is hard. It's not easy. You really need someone who can shepherd the votes and get it through the process in a timely way. Right. Raising a debt limit, getting a debt limit legislation through Congress, that's really very difficult. And if these if we saw that it's hard for them to even elect a speaker of the house, which you think would be a slam dunk that hasn't happened in a hundred year kind of thing, that gives you a sense of this is not going to be easy. So at the end of the day, even if uh, Republicans don't want to take us over the cliff, 
they want to sign on the dotted line. They, they want to press this, but they ultimately they will, they want to, they may make a mistake. It could, it's easy, mm. They could make a mistake. They could maybe not get it actually across the finish line for the president to sign in time and someone doesn't get paid. And that obviously would be bad. And I don't know if there'd be as cataclysmic a scenario I just described for you, because that requires this to go on for days and, and weeks. This, they may, in this case, they wouldn't do that, but still, even a breach of a short period of time is a problem. I'll give you one reason for thought on that. There was a, a technical breach back in 1979. In 1979, there was a battle over the debt limit. They, everyone signed on the dotted line in time, but the Treasury Department couldn't get its ducks in order, and they had a word processing mistake, so they couldn't make payments on a three-month Treasury bill, a short-term yeah. Treasury bill. And there's good academic research that shows because of that event that Investors didn't get their money right away when it was scheduled to get their money. Interest rates remained elevated for an extended period of time, and it cost taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. That word processing mistake, tens of billions of dollars. And that was 1979 when the debt load was a lot lower. Think about the numbers today if that was something like that were to happen. So it's not only – even if they're in, they don't have the intent of driving us over the cliff, the probability that they will because of the, you know, the dysfunction here and the difficulty of getting anything done in this Congress – raises the odds that we have a mistake and they actually, we do go over the cliff. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Robeson. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you'll love because I really enjoy it. It's just chock full of smart, engaging, surprising interviews and reports that go way beyond the usual partisan bludgeoning. You know what I'm talking about. The show is called The Gist. It's the longest running news and commentary podcast out there, and it has that kind of staying power because the host, Mike Pesca, just puts forward these really interesting arguments and asks great questions. You'll definitely hear things you don't agree with right next to arguments that make you say, damn straight. Plus, he's pretty funny. Some of the recent segments that I've really enjoyed, he tried to understand the Never Kevin Caucus. Yes, they're nihilistic, but also explained how they're acting in their own rational self-interest. He interviewed Michael Imperioli, you know, from The Sopranos. How about his interview with the guy who ran Stakem's Twitter account and Harvey Weinstein's prison consultant? If any of this sounds interesting to you, listen to The Gist every evening wherever you get your podcasts. Let me, let me take you a little bit into the weeds and unpack a what I call a conflation notion or a notion of conflation. Because here we are, we have a really big national debt and we run annual deficits. And as a New Hampshire congressman, it was always my position that we really needed to be more fiscally responsible and we have seen the national debt go up and deficits come and go. It's always a subject of discussion and a political hot point. The Republicans, for example, under President Trump, put in huge tax benefits for rich people, drove the deficit, annual deficit deeper and deeper, increased our national debt. But today, the Republican position is that there need to be cuts to entitlement programs as a trade-off for agreeing to increase the debt ceiling on what's already been spent. So they want to say, you know, in the future, we want to cut Social Security and Medicare in order to vote to pay for what we already did. Is there any economic relationship between the two? No, I, I don't think so. I'm with you. I think we need to be better stewards of our fiscal situation, that we don't want to run large budget deficits, add infinitum into the future. 
it hasn't been a serious problem up to this point in time, but our debt load is high and interest rates are going to be higher going forward than they have been in the recent past. And we do need to be, I think, more cognizant of the risks here and work on getting our fiscal house in order, meaning smaller deficits. And that can be either through more spending, government spending restraint or higher taxes, some, presumably some combination of the, of the two. But that's independent of what we're talking about here. That's a policy going forward. Policy going forward, I totally agree, we need to be more fiscally disciplined, and that, that's critical. But here we're talking about things that have already been agreed to. These are policies that we agree to. Right. And the deficits we're struggling with now are the result of both policies from Democrats and Republicans. So Democrats have... There, we have had a lot of deficit finance spending and also Republicans. You mentioned the Trump tax cuts. Those were that was a two trillion dollar package that was deficit finance, just like the American Rescue Plan was a two trillion two trillion dollar package that was deficit finance. So both parties have come together and created the situation we're in right now. But that's looking that's the past. And we made we the nation, we as taxpayers through our representatives, lawmakers agreed to these things. And we told, we're telling everyone we agree to them, and therefore we now have to pay for them. And you can't say, I'm not doing that because for all the reasons we, we just described. So yeah, we shouldn't conflate uh, what is a good appropriate policy going forward with what we need to do right now to pay for what we already agreed to. All right. So, I want to take advantage of the both of you now for a second, because I've got one of the great economists in the United States, maybe around the world, oh. and I've got a former US congressman. And so we get to do this nexus of the economics and the politics. And here's the big question. Is there a deal to be had here? Is there a, an actual is there an actual fix along the lines of what the Republican Freedom Caucus folks are looking for? And I'll tell you where I'm coming from on this. I used to work for members of I worked for several members of Congress and several of them were fiscally conservative. A few of them were what used to be called blue dogs, which are basically sure. like conservative Democrats. And when it came to issues of the budget, they lived in what I called the blue dog box. You're a conservative Democrat. So politically, you can't propose anything that increases the debt because that's bad politically. And that's where the Freedom Caucus people are coming from. But you can't propose anything that cuts defense because that's bad politically. You can't propose anything to cut Social Security and Medicare because that's death politically. And so what you're left with is a very small part of the budget that's left over. Remember, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, it's about two-thirds of the budget. And then of that remaining one-third, half of that is defense. So a little quick math here. That means what you're already shrunk down to is like a sixth. And within that, if you're a conservative Democrat, meaning you're probably from a more rural area, well, you're not going to cut any agriculture programs. You're not going to cut transportation programs. And the list keeps getting smaller and smaller. And the popular misconception is, oh, we give away lots and lots of foreign aid. No, we really don't. Less than 1% of the federal budget. So you're starting to look at smaller and smaller slices. So all of that turns into a question, really to the both of you, maybe we can start with you, Mark. I guess I just don't see it. I don't see where the money is. And if what you're hearing from some of these Freedom Caucus people, which is it's got to be to entitlement programs, I don't see how the politics of that work. Because what you're saying is 
we're going to cut Social Security and we're going to cut Medicare in order to agree to increasing the debt limit. I do not see any of these people voting for these things. What am I missing here from an economist's or a political economist's standpoint? Do you see things the same way? Yeah, I, I think you described the predicament very nicely. And I think that the onus to answer that question really goes to the Republicans that are forcing the issue here. Exactly what do you want to cut and how do you want to cut it? And let's talk about, let's get down to brass tacks here and talk about that because that is not obvious because the discretionary, non-military discretionary spending, as you say, is a very small piece of the pie and you could cut that to zero. And I'm not sure it's going to make you know that the kind of difference that folks are thinking about. So the, really at the end of the day, where the money is, where we have to make a, a change to really have a meaningful impact on spending growth going forward is in the healthcare programs, right? It's in the Medicare and Medicaid. And, but that's difficult. And we took a crack at that under Obamacare, which actually has reduced the cost of healthcare inflation quite significantly. Change, we got a lot of deficit saving through Obamacare over the long run, if you look at the CBO estimates and what kind of savings we've actually seen since then. But that's where we need to continue to focus to try to bring that in. But I think that from... It, this isn't going to answer the question about what's the deal here, but I do think it's an important first principle that whatever policy legislators put forward going forward, it has to be paid for, right? One way or the other. If you're proposing a tax cut, okay, fair enough, but how are you paying for it? Exactly how are you paying for it? Or if you're proposing a spending increase, you got to, how are you paying for it? Was it what tax increase or other spending cuts? I don't know, but- that's got to be first principle. So maybe there's a deal that we can come up with some kind of mechanism for ensuring that, that happens. And in fact, some people have proposed that. And another idea is, okay, if you are going to deficit finance something going forward, some proposal going forward, at that in that same piece of legislation, you have to have written in the increase in the debt limit to pay for it so that we don't battle over this debt limit again, because that makes no sense given you've all agreed to this policy that you put forward. But it's not clear. You're right. It's not clear. And that, again, goes to the nervous here as to how this is going to play out. And are we going to be able to do it? And Paul, can I wheel the question over to you for a second? Because sure. you've been in the midst of this yep. yourself. And I guess what we're seeing in the last couple of weeks is a out of Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, old friend of ours, actually. We're not negotiating. And they'll say on the record, we will not negotiate with terrorists. We will right. not put the full faith and credit of the United States on the table, meaning you want to talk about debt? Great. We're going to do that outside the context. You increase the debt ceiling so that you're not holding a metaphorical gun to the head of the American economy. Then we'll talk about cuts. Is that the right position or should there actually be a negotiation here? Because Joe Manchin just came out a day or two ago and said, I'm willing to negotiate. So it's a little, there's a little bit of political cleverness that could be exercised here. First of all, when I was in Congress, my darling wife, whose nickname is Pego, and most people know her as Pego, was actually invoked often by President Obama. He'd say, we're talking about Pego here. I'm not talking about Hose's wife. I'm talking about <laughs> Pego. And Pego came in to say, if you're going to do a program, you have to find a way to pay for it, as Mark suggested. So there was PAYGO back then. And of course, we've had emergencies. And in emergencies, the government spends without thinking about where they're going to find the money. we got to spend the money because we're in an emergency. So we've had COVID and financial crises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I have not been hearing a lot about in recent years is the question about 
how do we make social security sustainable? Because social security is, it's on kind of shaky ground right now in terms of where the dough is going to come from. And the baby boomers are, have now retired or are retiring in droves. And there's more coming out of social security than going in, according to a lot of people. So there's always been a big debate about that. And of course, we have increasing Medicare is paying a lot for baby boomers also. So there are big costs for social security and Medicare. What if somebody clever, not going to negotiate about cuts to programs, but let's talk about together. And Joe Biden may be the only president who could actually reach a hand out across the aisle to do this. What if we came up with a deal to make Social Security sustainable as a way, mm. instead of cutting, let's talk together. And we're, it's a win-win for you guys because you can, you'll be able to, and this, of course, is all done in the back room. It's not done publicly. But Joe Biden says you guys can then claim victory because you forced changes in the way business is done. We can claim victory because we're going to make Social Security sustainable. And everybody, everybody wins. And we'll make a debt limit deal as part of this new approach to making Social Security sustainable. And it's going to involve some pain because maybe we have to raise the age, maybe we have to change the tax limit on wages and all that. So there's going to be a little pain for everybody, but we all take the hit and we all claim the victory. I like it. I like it. I think it sounds great. As I said, I think, clever. I thought it was I clever. I it, thought it was clever. Yeah. I think it's, there's a reason they call social security the third rail. Just, I think there is a ton of short-term incentives. Warren Buffett said, and any economist would agree, people respond to incentives. I don't know that there's a political incentive for people to get together and say, all right, now we're going to be real mature. You jump, I jump. We're all in this together. We're all going to take the political hit together because it's so easy to demagogue anything you do. When you say we're going to put Social Security on firm footing, what is so easy for some 25-year-old comms staffer on a campaign to say is, Congressman Hodes cut Social Security. Now your grandma's going to die. And it's just, and I have great. Hey, 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 Paul, it sounds like he's done that sometime in the past. I'm just saying. I can neither confirm nor deny. He He said it to me, actually, when he was my (laughs) chief of staff. And I tried tried to talk about the issue, the third rail saying, okay, let I, of course, there are lots of third rails. This is, a, this is as you say, Matt, it is the third rail of all politics. But what's your option for making Oh, there was an option. You know, what really frosts me about all this is that we didn't have to be here. So for one thing, for years, clever staffers, cleverer than I, when I was on the Hill, have been saying, hey, why don't we get rid of the debt ceiling? We don't have to have one under the constitution. And then when we couldn't get together and agree on that, Dick Gephardt, the former democratic leader in the house came up with a really clever rule, which was as soon as we pass a budget, let's just include in there that we've increased the debt ceiling. It was called the Gephardt rule. Guess what the first thing is that the Republicans did as part of their corrupt bargain to put Kevin McCarthy in place as Speaker of the House. They got rid of the Gephardt rule. They could have just quietly done this in the dead of night and no one would have cared. 
No one would have been the wiser, but the yahoos in the Freedom Caucus insisted, no, we've got to have this crisis. They want it. They're thirsty for it. And here we are. So we had escape hatches. We've just decided to nail them and bolt them shut. Mark, do you disagree with any of that? Do you see another way out? I'd give them back the get part rule. So they took it out. <laughs> so I'm just, just give it back to them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you won. Here's the get part rule. That's a good way of addressing it. Although I like, I'm a little nervous about linking a debt limit solution to social security reform. They should be delinked in some way because mm. at the end of the day, the debt limit has to be addressed regardless of anything else. I mean, that there is that hostage terrorist thing that we need to be worried about. But I do think if you can send a signal to say, hey, look, I hear you. And I think that's in President Biden's DNA. I think he wants anything. He wants to address these long-term fiscal problems. I think he is cons more conservative Democrat in that sense. So I think it would be in his DNA to say, hey, look, let's get to the other side of this. And let's think about maybe the entitlement programs and how we can make them better. And on Social Security, that's a that's an easier nut to crack than the Medicare and Medicaid because there's some right. obvious things you can do, both on the tax side and the spending side. And let's maybe address it half tax, half spending, because that kind of feels like a compromise. And as Paul says, let's get it on firmer ground. I, politically, it's difficult, but maybe there's an opportunity. That's the opportunity forward here, something along those lines. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Actually, what? can I ask you, yeah. like, is there any reason I sometimes wonder, is there a reason to keep mosquitoes around? If we could just get rid of all mosquitoes, are they like important in the food web in some way that can't be replaced? I feel the same way about the debt ceiling. It's Has it done anything? <laughs> You've already outlined that in 1979, essentially yeah. because of a typo, we cost ourselves tens of billions of dollars for no, no. freaking reason. No. Has There's the no debt reason. ceiling ever functioned to control our spending or to otherwise provide something beneficial. Is there any good economically that's ever come out of it? No, I always viewed it as just mar marketing. I, I didn't view it as anything substantive and it doesn't, it has not helped and it's increasingly become more and more of a problem. In fact, I am curious, one thing I don't understand is there was some talk in the lame duck here session that just before the new Congress was, was, was appointed that because the Democrats controlled the House and they controlled the Senate and the President Biden is a Democrat, why not at that point in time pass a piece of legislation getting rid of the debt? Why not do it then? And I never really understood. It never really gained traction. I'm not quite sure. I wonder why. Because having a debt ceiling makes it look like we're being fiscally responsible. That's marketing, right? That's Going marketing. Back to marketing. Totally. Yeah. Mar it's yeah. marketing yeah. and politics, yeah. not reality. Yeah. But so what do you make of the Republican plan? They have a emergency contingency plan where they say we'll pay the we'll pay the soldiers, but we won't pay the anything else makers and the candlestick makers. It won't know? work. It won't work. I'm come on. I'm a Chinese bondholder. I'm a Japanese bondholder. I'm a British bondholder. I'm a Canadian bondholder. And I, I see say. and I see you're not paying the electric bill. How long are you not going to pay a social security recipient? You're not going to pay the military. How long is that going to last? I'd say about one hour politically, <laughs> and therefore I'm out of here. I'm not getting paid. So I don't so think that convinces is, anybody of anything. If I come to you, I'm like your deadbeat brother-in-law, Paul, and I come to you and it's, can I borrow some money? And you're like, do you owe anyone else any money? And have you paid it back? And I'm like, yes, I owe <laughs> lots of money all over town. And no, I'm not paying anybody else right now, but I'd like to borrow from you. 
Your yeah. answer would be what exactly? Your analogy, is, yeah, yeah. yeah, your analogy is good, except I'm the deadbeat brother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real race to the bottom there. I mean, Mark, what I hear you saying here ultimately is I'm hearing you agree with the Biden position, which is the concern that Republicans are raising here isn't wrong. It isn't stupid. There's something to it. Over 30 years, these numbers are like a year or two old, but close enough. Over 30 years, Social Security faces a $31 trillion shortfall. Medicare faces a $71 trillion shortfall. By the way, the rest of the budget, only $3 trillion. That's a lot of money, but like compared to the entitlement programs, it's not much. Those are problems. I care about that. I have young children. That is a problem for their future. And we can talk about that, but there is no connection between that and the debt ceiling. And so essentially, they really are holding up a puppy here with a, boy, this is a violent mm -hmm. image, but they're threatening to shoot the dog is basically what they're saying. And there's no, it's just leverage. They're just using something potentially catastrophic for American families as leverage. And there's really no connection there. Yeah. Here's a dark irony. The dark irony is the folks that are willing to breach the debt limit to address our fiscal problems are by breaching the debt limit going to crater our fiscal situation. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I agree with the administration that these, yeah, we got a fiscal, we got fiscal problems we have to address. I'm on board with that and I'm willing to, you know, they should be willing to have conversations around how to address that, but that has nothing to do with this debt limit thing, because that has everything to do with what decisions we made collectively in the past. And we just got to pay our bills. And there's no question that we have to pay our bills. There's no way around it. There's no prioritization. There's no platinum coin. There's no 14th amendment. There's nothing, none of that's going to work. We, there's only one way out of this mess. Got to sign on the dotted line, either raise or suspend the debt limit. One of the, oh. one of those three choices. Oh, Mark, you just said something so amazing because no one's going to remember this, but it's such a, it's such a weird little story. You just said platinum coin. Are you referring to this idea that circulated about 10 years ago, the last time oh, we went back. through this? It's back. Oh, it's yeah. back. Oh, yeah. tell, tell people what you're talking about here. This is amazing. Under federal law there, if you read the language, it, it says that the treasury can mint a platinum coin. It, it says nothing about the denomination of the coin. Now, of course, when it was written, it was around allowing the treasury to do platinum coins for commemorative coins, but there's nothing about a denomination in there. The thinking is pick, pick a denomination. Hey, how about a trillion dollar coin? So if you mint a tr trillion dollar coin, you take that proverbial step down to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, here's my trillion dollar coin. Give me the cash. Fed says, oh, okay, here's a trillion bucks, and you go out and pay your bills and spend it. Wow. Now, of course, it has all kinds of ish problems, right? I mean, why a trillion? Why not $20 trillion? And then what happens to the checks and balances in the government between Congress and the executive branch around spending? Or then what happens to the Fed? And it's in the, it becomes completely politicized in the independence of Fed. So it's a completely crazy idea. And of course, the obvious I didn't even mention, is it legal? Someone's going to immediately sue and go to the Supreme Court. Will the Supreme Court actually say, yeah, oh yeah, they can issue a trillion dollar coin. Of course, investors are going to say, that's craziness. They're not going to say that. So I'm still out of here. I'm going to bail. So it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem.
Oh, I love this. All right. All right. Look, actually, that's a great jumping off point to where I want to go next. And again, I'm going to take advantage of the two of you. How do we, what does the end game look like realistically? Maybe there are different scenarios, but I'm hoping that people are going to be watching this on YouTube for a good long time. It's a great explainer of the situation we're in. Unfortunately, it's probably going to be relevant for a good long time here. So how do we get out of this? Paul, do you have a political idea of what that future might look like? And then I want to ask Mark for your perspective. What's the way out? In the, what happens is Mitch McConnell gets together with Kevin McCarthy and he sits him down and he says, listen, my son, you're in a precarious enough position. You think you're being, you're, you're, you're being held hostage here. Your, your hands are, you're sitting in the hard chair. You basically, your wrists are tied behind you. Here's what you're going to do. And this is why you're going to do it. We are not going to default in this country. You are going to rise above this. You're going you're gonna to talk straight to those nut jobs who are part of your caucus. And you're going to figure out how to do the right thing with the rest of your caucus. Let them go where they can. Between you and the Democrats, you're going to vote to raise the debt ceiling. I'm telling you what you're going to do, and you're going to do it because you don't have a choice. I thought you were going to go in a different direction. I really did. I thought you were going to say discharge, not not to like wonk out on people here, but there is a way in Congress that you can force something to be voted on, even if the majority doesn't want to, which is literally a petition. It's like change.org, but only within Congress. And if you get 218 people to sign it, it has to come to the floor. And so the idea is what you've been part of discharge petitions before, Paul. What do you think about that angle where you could get, there are like 18 Republicans who are currently in Biden districts, meaning the district voted for Joe Biden in 2020. So these are probably Republicans who don't want to be going to the mat with the Freedom Caucus. That might work. Might that do it? It could work if you could get, you know, that there's such a slim majority here. If you could get enough of those 18 people and quietly, Hakeem Jeffries would quietly say to them, look, let's look at where you're really at. You won in a Biden district. You, you're being held hostage by these freedom guys. You don't really have a choice. You've got to do the right thing with us. And then you could turn around and talk about how you're independent from your party. So instead of our ad saying he voted 99.9% of the time with Kevin McCarthy and the whack jobs, we're only going to be able to say 98% of the time you voted with the whack jobs. And then there's another scenario, Mark, if you have other thoughts, I am all ears on this. The other one that occurs to me is a Cuban Missile Crisis scenario where the deal, the quiet behind the scenes deal was... We're not going to link these two things together. You withdraw your missiles from Cuba. And in six months, in a apparently totally unrelated way, we are going to retire our Jupiter, Jupiter missiles from Turkey. And it, you get what you want, but it doesn't look like we just got held hostage. Maybe you could do something like that on entitlement programs or, or et cetera. I don't know. Th those are all of my ideas. What are you hearing? You talk to a million political leaders. What do you think? I'm hopeful what's going to happen here is that financial markets react that haven't been reacting in these previous episodes because they investors think they've seen this movie before and they know the ending that lawmakers are going to sign on the dotted line. But as I said earlier, this time feels different to me for the reasons we've been discussing. And if I feel that way, I'm pretty sure other investors feel that way too. Yeah, we're still a long, we're still months away from this. So you asked the question earlier, I didn't answer by why haven't we seen markets react? It's too long into the future. 
But as we get closer and closer to September and the drop dead date, when we're going over the cliff, and it's when Secretary Yellen says the drop dead date is September 18th, then I think investors, and it's still the dysfunction in Congress is at a fevered pitch, I think markets start to react. And as soon as markets react, then lawmakers are going to get calls from not Mitch McConnell, but from their contributors. And they're going to say, what in the world is going on? We can't let this go over the cliff. And it's going to become clear who's the winner here politically and who's the loser here politically. And whoever is the loser is going to have to blink. And that blink may be take the form of a discharge position, petition. It may take the form of Cuban Missile Crisis scenario, but you know that something along those lines. But you need that forcing mechanism, and it's, I think it's going to come from the market. So I'm hopeful that that's what's going to happen here. That this external pressure is going to start bearing down on lawmakers, and they realize that this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense economically. We all figure know that. But once it figured, they figured out it doesn't make any sense politically, then something happens. I know we've got to wrap because we're about to lose Mark, who has to go explain all of this to investors, TV viewers, members of Congress, the White House, and everyone else who matters in the universe. I will say this, though. The note you just ended on, Mark, makes a lot of sense to me. And people who may be watching this or listening to this may be wondering, oh, my gosh, we have this train barreling down the tracks at us. What can we do? ourselves to try and avert this. And I think the answer is embedded in what you just said. And I know that this is self-interested, but part of what you can do is share this episode if you're watching it, if you're listening to it, because ultimately I can attest to this as a former staffer, and I know Paul can attest to this as a former member of Congress. It's what you just said. It's if members of Congress feel that they're about to get blamed for something that is super on the mind of voters, then they're going to act. They will not act unless the pain point is high enough and they feel like it's going to fall on them. Right now, Republicans are incentivized to actually see the economy do badly. They have a schadenfreude potential that is off the charts. And it's because if things go badly under Biden, they think that's good for them, no matter who has to pay the consequences in misery in their own lives. But if voters make the connection, if media helps people make the connection to why we're in this situation, you know why we're feeling this pain in the markets that's beginning to seep its way into the cost that you're feeling at home. It's because of these holdouts in Congress who are forcing us into this situation for absolutely no reason. If they begin to feel that heat, then they will act. And I think you've unlocked the solution. So there is something that people can do, should do. It's not just watching this and listening to this and sharing it, although we certainly do want you to do that. But that is part of it. That is part of it. Pay attention and speak up about it because you actually can move people's opinions. On that diatribe, Dr. Mark Zandi, thank you so much for all of your expertise, for walking us through this. I feel highly educated by everything we've just talked about and maybe a little hopeful that there's a way out, but if not, I'll see you on the other side of the apocalypse. That was my goal. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really Thanks. enjoyed the conversation. And I didn't know, how did you say Schadenfreude? I thought Schadenfreude. Oh, I, I definitely got it wrong. Okay. I got to go practice that because- Yeah, that's, that's a, a good one. That's a good word. Yep. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. See ya. Bye-bye.